0: It's question show time, your questions, my answers, wherever you are across my channel. If a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up. And I will answer them here. I record this show every Monday at 5pm Pacific live on my YouTube channel. So if you want to join me live, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes where you can go and and join the next event. Uh, If you're watching this afterwards, I recorded this episode on Monday, February fifteenth, 2021. So if some things are out of date, that's why Trey Harmon asks, "Why do so many NASA Mars missions go straight for entry, descent, landing without orbital insertion first? Isn't this riskier?" Thanks. That is a very good question. Um, The like right now, the Chinese mission—they've gone into orbit and it's going to deploy a lander rover. Now that it's safely in orbit, while in the same thing with the UAE mission, it's just nicely going into orbit, and as as. I think it was Pamela who said that the the NASA is just coming in YOLO just like straight in, punching into the atmosphere, slowing down and landing. And I think it's just because they can do it. They've they've pretty much mastered the technique of being able to deploy the parachute as or I guess you know, use the aeroshell first kick out the aeroshell, use the parachute to be able to slow itself down, then use the crane to lower itself down and use the rockets to slow itself down even more and then land it gently on the surface. And that's just the You know, if you have to have, like, some kind of orbital capability, and then you've got to have some kind of descent thrusters, and so on, just adds more complexity and weight to the mission. So my assumption, and I actually don't know that I haven't, I haven't talked to someone specifically about this, is that you're just, you don't need all that additional gear and propellant and all that you're instead of having to use propellant to slow yourself down to go into an orbital insertion, you're just using the atmosphere to slow yourself down. The problem so far is that NASA doesn't think that they can scale up the techniques that they're using to land on Mars, really beyond what perseverance and curiosity, they're already pretty much at the limit of what you can do with this technique of entry, descent and landing. Um, They've got a plan, they're working on with a kind of inflatable aeroshell that should get them up to like maybe three tons. But even that they've been testing these out, it hasn't really gone the way they've wanted it to yet. So using this technique, they're pretty much they're not gonna be able to land anything that's bigger than that. When you look at something like starship, they're also going to do an entry descent and landing. um, But their plan is that they're going to use this belly flop technique and then just do a really high powered thrust land to be able to actually get rid of all of the rest of their velocity. But that's still a big unknown. And, you know, I think that we are right now, we're waiting for, like, we think about the checklist of things that have to be done to make make sure that Starship is actually going to work. You've got to, right now, we've got they've got to land without exploding but starships explode it's what they do, then they've got to be able to re enter the Earth's atmosphere and really demonstrate that they can do that belly flop and then do that kick. But the atmosphere on Mars is rough, it's only 1% the thickness of the atmosphere on Earth. And so, so they've got to be able to do that belly flop maneuver, but they've got a lot less atmosphere to slow them down. And so they're gonna have to sort of manage how much atmosphere are they using to sort of bleed off their velocity and slow themselves down. And then how much time are they going to spend using a propelled landing. And the more time they spend doing a propelled landing, the more propellant they have to use, the less cargo they can carry. So I think it's going to be trickier than but I mean, like Elon Musk, he's kind of like me, it's over always oversimplifies how this is all going to play out. So I'm, I'm interested to see just like what the final outcome is going to be with Starship. So yeah, Michael West asks, How do you feel about SpaceX launching the moon platforms for NASA? Last couple of days, I guess the last week, we got the announcement that NASA has officially announced they're going to be using the Falcon Heavy as the launcher for the first component of the Deep Space Gateway, that's going to be the power and propulsion system. And we had known for the last probably year or so that NASA was considering this was sort of under uh, Jim Bridenstine's tenure at NASA to sort of start to open up more and more of the launch capability to private companies like Blue Origin, like uh, SpaceX, ULA's Vulcan rocket and so on. So this was kind of inevitable. Like I think with the successful launches of the Falcon Heavy, demonstrating very heavy payloads, it brought the capability of this mission into the hands of of the Falcon Heavy for a fraction of the price of an SLS. I mean, a Falcon Heavy is $90 million. an SLS is one and a half, two billion a half $2 billion. Like it just makes a mountain of sense to launch on a Falcon Heavy. So I think it's a great idea. I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, Right now, there is no super heavy launch vehicle. So there's nothing that could launch, say, the Artemis mission. Like, in theory, you could upscale a... Crew Dragon uh, launch on it on one thing do a dock in space fly to the lunar gateway and then use some kind of of ferry vehicle to carry you down to the surface use a blue origin lander, like you could probably make Artemis work with the hardware that exists today. But to just do the raw launch with the full stack rebuild recreate Apollo Uh, you're going to still need a super heavy rocket. Now, obviously, Starship could do it. But right now, Starships explode in Texas. So so it's a little premature to, to fully count on that. And I think it's gonna be a while before NASA lets Starships carry their astronauts. So if I was SpaceX, I would make a deep space version of Crew Dragon. I mean, here's the kind of amazing thing. Crew Dragon has more interior space than the Apollo capsule. Like they're big, they're really big. And if you've only got, say, three astronauts on board, um, there's plenty of space. And so if you make a another module that can go on with it, some kind of support module that can help keep the astronauts alive, uh, you kind of don't need the Orion. So I think that with some creative work, SpaceX, Blue Origin, NASA could work together and I think dramatically cut the expenses of being able to do the Artemis mission. I think that's the big thing right now is that the SLS and the Orion capsule and all of that, it's built on the Saturn V concept It's built on the Apollo concept. And, and we're in this much more modern time with new techniques and technologies. And I think that they can dramatically bring down the price. And if you bring down the price, then then that allows you to do the missions for cheaper allows you to sustain the the missions to the moon. And I think the thing that we need to get to as quickly as possible, is a permanent inhabited base on the moon in the way that we have a permanent inhabited base in space with the International Space Station. And so it can't be these $2 $2 million flights to carry astronauts up to the moon, it's got to be this much more regular thing where you've got the lunar gateway, missions fly to the lunar gateway, deliver astronauts astronauts float around there, there's missions going up and down to the lunar base. And the people live on the lunar base for six months or a year or whatever. There's, there's a lot of science, it needs to be done. And we need a lunar base. And so we need to be able to stay so I think it's great news. I think I think it's the exact right choice to use the Falcon Heavy. And I'm looking forward to, to more and more of that happening. Andrew planet asks, if this universe as a whole is at least 250 times larger than the observable universe, doesn't that make this universe finite in size instead of infinite? Yeah, two possibilities exist. The universe is infinite, or the universe is finite. And if the universe is infinite, then it goes on forever. So it is definitely at least 250 times larger, because it's infinite Two, infinity is bigger than 250 times bigger. And so that's like the one possibilities that it's infinite. But this 250 times larger is is essentially how big would the universe have to be at least so that we can't measure the curvature with our best instruments and our best observations to date. And so right now, when astronomers measure the curvature of the universe, they get no curvature, they get that the universe is flat. And just to give you an analogy, right, like say you were an ant crawling around on the earth, and you attempted to measure the curvature of the earth, and say the earth was perfectly flat. And if your best instrument tell you that the Earth is flat, then you could calculate how big the Earth would have to be for it to be a sphere. At the very, you know, and it would be some enormous size. Like you'd be like, okay, with the if the Earth is bigger than twenty thousand kilometers across, you know, it's a sphere, then you know, then it's a sphere, or it's just a flat plane, like either I'm I'm an ant walking around on a flat plane, or at the very least, it's a sphere that is, I guess, the diameter of the Earth is like 13,000 kilometers across, or it's a sphere 13,000 kilometers across. Ant says, I can't rule out that the Earth is finite, it could be an infinite plane. But but that's the minimum size. And so when astronomers say like the, they still don't know whether the universe is finite or infinite. If it's infinite, it goes on forever. If it's finite, then to their best measurement, it is at least the number you said, 250 times bigger than the observable universe that we can see. And as our instruments get better and better, then the minimum size of the universe will continue to grow. And maybe at some point, astronomers will say, it is at least 1,000 times bigger. It's at least 10,000 times bigger. But they may never, unless they actually measure the size, and you know, they go, oh, it is exactly 950 times bigger than than the observable universe. We may never be able to solve that just know that the universe is bigger at least than than what we can perceive. Of course, we can't reach, you know, we'll never be able to reach more than 6% of the observable universe anyway, because it's all gonna be flying away from us faster than the speed of light. So don't worry about it. Visto 2 asks, would the event horizon of an enormous black hole appear flat? Uh, sure, yeah, I mean, it depends on the size, right? If it was a black hole, the size of 250 times bigger than the observable universe, then it would appear flat. But uh, because a black hole, an enormous black hole is inside our universe, then pretty much any black hole that we can observe is going to be smaller than the universe. And so we would perceive it as a circle. But if you got really, really close to it, uh, which I do not recommend then you might have a difficult time being able to tell you know measuring the curvature of the black hole and so yeah but I mean it would need to be really big <laughs> matter hat if I gave you 50 billion dollars to spend on space what would you do 50 billion dollars not a lot I mean that I would go through that pretty quickly um hmm What would I do? What are my priorities? I would build the overwhelmingly large telescope for about $4 billion. So we go right to the 100 meter telescope. I would put a radio telescope on the far side of the moon for about a billion dollars. I would build a next generation space telescope, I would construct it in space. I probably wouldn't build Louvre. I would build something that would be bigger than Louvoir, but it would be constructed in space. I would build a really powerful space based gravitational wave observatory so that we could see primordial gravitational waves. I would upgrade the square kilometer array to a larger version. And I would send more missions, I'd send missions to Venus, I'd send missions to Io, I'd send missions to Ganymede, some kind of lander, maybe Um, missions to Neptune, uh, Uranus, and more missions to Titan to see the the seas on Titan. And then there's some other pretty cool ideas that I really like, like, um, there's an idea of building these electric sails and you build a whole bunch of tiny little cubesats. Like I do a lot of cubesat missions. Now that NASA has been able to prove that they could send a cubesat to Mars and they were able to communicate back to Earth, I would send cubesats out into the asteroid belt all over the place. I'm sure there's a way you could send a whole bunch out on the same mission so that you could sample lots and lots of different ones. I'd build the comet interceptor mission, but maybe a fancier version so that you could Chase down the next interstellar object that passes through the solar system. So, and I would definitely build a lunar base, but I think I ran out of money. <laughs> People are saying, "Yeah, Arecibo, yeah, Arecibo two, but on the moon." It wouldn't exactly be Arecibo two. the The mission that I really like is this idea of you put this lander on the moon, and then you have a rover that goes out and just lays out um, antennae, these flat antennae like the Murchison array. Um, the one like it's going to be what the square kilometer array is They're these sort of Christmas trees, and this rover would would place out these Christmas trees in a giant flower shaped structure on the moon. And then it would it would be able to detect the like, the first stars forming in the universe, like not just the first galaxies, but the first stars, it would be able to detect uh, the magnetospheres of extrasolar planets, which is sort of you would you would discover planets by detecting that they have a protective magnetosphere, which is kind of a great idea. Since essentially, you'd it be a twofer, right? Because you would find another Earth, and you would know that that other Earth had a protective magnetosphere, which is kind of a clever idea. So yeah, I really like that idea of a telescope, if I had to like pick one thing, it would be the overwhelmingly large telescope for like, whatever 4 billion 5 billion 10 billion. It's a bargain to have a 100 meter telescope. That should be a top priority, because then you can use it for all kinds of things. John Wolf. Do you own any stocks or companies that have to do with space like Virgin Galactic or others any recommendations? I do but not intentionally. Um, I own index funds. So, you know, I have my retirement account and I buy Uh, low cost index funds that buy big chunks of the market. And then I don't think about it, because that's sort of like the safest way to invest. Um, And, but if you do, then you own all kinds of things. And apparently, like, Google owns a tiny fraction of SpaceX. And so by owning an index fund that in owns the entire market. I own a little bit of Google and that little bit of Google owns a little bit of SpaceX. So in theory, I must have a dollar or two in SpaceX probably less, I don't know, they announced they're going to be making Starlink public, which is kind of exciting. Um, I don't know, I, I'm not a huge fan of getting into kind of speculative <laughs> investments. Like that's universe today. That's my business. That's what I've invested my time, money and life into. I don't, I don't I don't I really kind of think that investing in specific companies is kind of a sucker's game, that it's better to just um, just in just invest in a broad index fund. I want to give a shout out to like my favorite podcast. Uh, podcast called the rational reminder, which is a it's a Canadian podcast, but they talk about investing and things like that. And it's totally been super helpful on how to sort of think about it. And there's a YouTuber named Ben Felix, and he's great. And I highly recommend his his stuff. If you're Canadian, just anyone just looking for like a science based approach to investing, I highly recommend his his channel. Nancy Graziano, since the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light, assuming intelligent life survives here, will there be a time when nothing will be visible beyond our solar system in the night sky? So uh, there will always be stars, like for the lifetime of the sun, like say the sun's gonna live for another five billion years. Of course, the sun is going to boil the Earth's oceans in about a billion years. So let's say but somehow we survive in the solar system living in our O'Neill cylinders. For a few billion years, we will see stars in the Milky Way for billions of years long beyond the time that the sun has died. And then you can move to some other solar system and you'll still see stars. What you'll see less and less of millennia after millennia is galaxies. Uh, distant galaxies. So anything that's in the local group is gravitationally bound to the Milky Way, Andromeda, m33, all of the the smaller, you know, they're all eventually going to merge into one super galaxy. Um, but everything else is is being carried away by the expansion of the universe, and, and it's being accelerated away by dark energy. And so we're going to see like the the color eventually those galaxies will, will get their color, the light will get red shifted farther and farther away into the red end of the spectrum. So eventually the light of a galaxy will turn red, and then the light the galaxies will turn infrared, and they will go into the microwave, and they'll go into the radio waves. And they'll just get longer and longer and longer until we can no longer detect the um, we can no longer detect these other galaxies. And so when that happens, if you're living in but that's like a trillion years from now, like it's a long time away before there are no other galaxies except for the local group. But yeah, if a if a a planet formed on a star in this new super mega galaxy, which won't be forming a lot of stars anymore after that sort of initial mergers all happen then there won't be any concept of, of cosmology beyond the galaxy that they won't see the cosmic microwave background, they won't see other galaxies, it'll feel like the universe has always been. But that said, there will always be ways there will always be tricks and techniques that they'll be able to use. I mean, they can build a radio telescope that could detect radio waves that are kilometers across with a wavelength and so they would still get a sense that that there's more to the universe than just the local group that that we can see they'll be able to sort of look out they'll be able to see the interstellar medium they'll be able to kind of the intergalactic medium sort of make these detections so there won't be a time i think where any future civilization will just not have any concept whatsoever of the larger cosmos. Verdadero. Hey, Fraser, why the costs and difficulties in sending a man to the moon are greater than 50 years ago, they're not the costs and difficulties of sending people to the moon now are a fraction of what they used to be, and way more accessible than it was during the Apollo era. So just to give you some some context here, right? Back during the Apollo era, while the Apollo missions were being designed and built, NASA's budget was about $500 billion in inflation adjusted money. And the actual just like the budget for the moon landings was about $300 billion. When you compare that to today, um, and that's like inflation adjusted dollars, right? So you compare that to today, NASA's annual budget is about $20 billion. But they only get about half that a third that is spent on human spaceflight. The rest is spent on science and atmosphere study and things like that. So, so they're actually really trying to essentially recreate the Apollo missions on an absolute shoestring. And the only way you can do that is thanks to modern technology you know, reusable rockets, things like SpaceX Falcon, the knowledge that's been gained in over time, the the miniaturization, the new computers, the more powerful uh, ability to communicate and so on. And so when the astronauts go back, and and like I said, you know, the goal should really be to build a base, it's not just to like, if they set foot on the moon again, and then come home and then don't do it again, then it will have been a horrible mistake, they should not have embarked upon constellation, SLS, Artemis, any of that. But, but in this modern age, I mean, SpaceX, a private company, funded through some customers and some investments, was able to make a rocket capable of launching multiple times for like $60 million is what it costs to launch on a on a Falcon nine 90 million if you want to launch on a Falcon Heavy. It's so cheap compared to what it was back in the Apollo era. So no, the costs are way down, the difficulties are way down. We've learned a ton about how to fly live, build hardware, live in space, all that kind of stuff. And so that's why I really think that back in the 1960s and 70s, the goal of setting a human on the moon required the concentration of an entire nation state of the United States and the Soviet Union focusing 100% of their energy to to win this goal. And this time around, it's just like it's a budgetary line. Oh, and by the way, we're going to go to the moon and set up a base and build a space station that orbits the moon and so on. So no, totally different time. And and that's that's good news. Because, because a gigantic budget, you know, gobbling effort, like the like the Apollo era is just it just wouldn't fly anymore. So no, I think uh I'm I'm glad that the that the prices are down, the capabilities are up, and it's a, it's a good time to go to the moon. More questions in a second, but first I'd like to thank Graham Weldon, Dionysus Lynn, Mark Campbell, Zach Perry, Reed Smith, Jacob Sundin, and the rest of our eight hundred and fifty-five patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com universe today. Matter hat. First feet on Mars has your opinion changed over the past five years? Hmm, I wonder what five years ago Fraser thought about first feet on Mars. Um, I'm sure someone could dig up my, my, me blathering on about it. So so you tell me my if my current thinking on Mars has changed from the way I used to talk about it. I think, I think my feelings about about Mars have really like, I think five years ago, I was kind of into colonizing Mars. And now I'm not into it. I'm, I'm totally into sending humans to Mars to explore Mars. Just in the way that we have a base in space, we should have a base on the moon, and we should have a base on Mars, and we should have a base on Ceres, maybe a base on a couple of other asteroids, that would be really cool. But a scientific base, a place where science gets gets done, not where people go and live and try to eke out a horrible existence in a completely unforgiving environment. Uh, Because like, if you want to do that, there's places here, like if you want to really test yourself, there's places and I, I hadn't really thought through that. Five years ago, five years ago, it's like, yeah, Mars is the next frontier. Let's go. Let's live there. And now I'm like, Oh, man, Mars really sucks. Let's like, like, go but just like, just appreciate the fact that it's awful. And so when I think about my thinking, then I was sort of thinking, like, first, you send the astronauts to go and explore, and then you send a bigger base, you build a bigger base, and then you build a city like Elon Musk. And now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of against it. Um, like, I really am. I'm really like, let's not build a city on Mars. Yeah. and i think like a city on mars will be as successful as a city on as a, a you know village on mars will be about as successful as a village on a, in antarctica which is not very people have tried to live in antarctica and failed you know many times cuz it's just it's tough it's really hard to live there there's places that are really extreme and i'm sure in the beginning you're like yeah free space where i can really stretch my legs and no one can tell me what to do man i'm I'm, a, I'm living my best version of myself. And you're like, I'm cold, and there's no food. And it's always stormy and dark. And, and on Mars, you get to add like, and I can't breathe. And there's radiation. And there's no water or life. Like, yeah, like, I know that you can sort of test yourself. But anyway, so, so I know I'm kind of rambling, but, but I think that so you know, if someone says like, here's our plan to build the city on Mars, I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not signing up for this. I'm not, I'm not going to sign on. And so that's why I think when I hear Elon Musk say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to send humans to Mars, they're going to live on Mars, they're going to love it. I don't think they will. I just think some people think they're going to love it. And then they're going to go and then they're going to hate it. And they're going to want to come home. But I do think that SpaceX via Starship will be capable of sending humans sooner than I had originally thought like back five years ago, I would have said in the mid 2030s. Now I definitely think we'll see humans set foot on on Mars before the end of the 2020s. Like not long, like Musk still thinks 2026. I yeah, I think that's maybe a little aggressive but 2028. That doesn't sound crazy as long as there's a way to come home again. So yeah, I think people are going to be setting foot on Mars sooner. And I think Mars is a less interesting place to live on than it than it ever was. Uh, You know, I say gravity wells are for suckers, you know, have that sign there. But even that, like, like, we're just there will be a time when (laughs) sorry, (laughs) Muchi de the but Fridger Cain freedom, horrible freedom. Yeah, exactly. Just terrible, terrible, painful, awful freedom. Um, Anyways, right now, existing in space, like existing in Antarctica, or like existing in the death zone on Mount Everest just requires this mountain of supply and support, where you're living on the razor's edge of survival. And that's no way to live like that's a way to accomplish something kind of amazing. But it's no way to just live. Um, But there will be a time when our technology will trivialize these things. And each advancement in this technology as it trivializes our capability to live in extreme conditions, then what seemed like a terrible idea will suddenly seem like a great idea. Like, yeah, do you want to go live on Mars? Sure, why not just hop in our metallic hydrogen fueled uh, fusion thrusted rocket fly to Mars in about a week land on Mars hang out at the spa in the anti grav city. I don't know, (laughs) you know, or like living in in big O'Neill cylinder like when these things are there, it will be obvious when we're capable of being able to to build these things and surviving these things. And until then, it just won't make sense in the same way that it just doesn't make sense to try to eke out existence in Antarctica, like there's plenty of places on Earth that you can stretch your legs have some freedom. Um, and not worry that you're going to constantly freeze to death or, or asphyxiate. Six Bob Ohms Fraser, would a moon city protect humanity from extinction as well as a Mars city or no? (laughs) I, I don't think that a Mars city or a moon city will really protect humanity from extinction. Maybe again, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, when we've got lots of the capability, we're, we're living, we've trivialized like that's the key that we have trivialized the environment in the same way, like think about a person living in the desert of Arizona in the summer, that your air conditioner has trivialized living in in Arizona, that is how it needs to feel. And so until that technology comes along, it's just going to be constant suffering hard scrabble to survive, supported by an enormous amount of resources that are being sent from Earth to keep everybody going. So if there's some devastating problem on Earth, then the Mars colony, the moon colony starves, they run out of resources, and they all die. Um, And then you think about the kind of scenarios, like sure, yeah, pandemic Yeah, if you're on the moon, and there's a global pandemic on Earth, then you're fine. But a global pandemic on Earth won't wipe out humanity, it'll be bad, and lead to a lot of death, but then some people will be immune, and there'll be vaccines, and it'll just be a hit. You know, when you think about climate change, horrible climate change, the worst case scenario of climate change is still a zillion times better than the moon or Mars, like the worst we could do to the climate is still just a paradise compared to the moon or Mars. Um, like the artificial intelligence, yeah, you, you, the artificial intelligence takes over on Earth, and then they build up just spaceships, and they chase you to the moon. So you can't, you can't get away from killer AI. So I, I don't really think that there are any things that we can really protect like that's not a good justification to build a moon or mars colony i think in my opinion yeah i think the the purpose to build a a moon base or a mars base or a space base is to do it to to demonstrate that that we have the capability to to explore farther and farther out into the solar system to learn more. But let's take our time. We're in rush, right? We already have found the best place in the entire universe, which is the Earth, which is conveniently under our feet. So everything else that we find is gravy. And every moment that we spend making our planet worse, the best place in the universe, seriously, aliens, bring it on. I, I stand by that is the hill that I will that I'll die. On. We've got the best planet in the universe um, for us, because we evolved here. Uh, yeah, there's like no reason to go any other place. But of course, you want to go to other places. And so but you do it to explore, you do it to advance your knowledge, you do it to, to to understand our place in the cosmos. And and I and I just I don't know, like, there's this show, you can watch called alone. And you, uh, they they drop people on Vancouver Island, actually, it's kind of funny. And they have to survive on Vancouver Island for you know, and like, I, like, everywhere I look around, just like, Oh, that looks like home. <laughs> and they just, they are sad and alone. And they go crazy one after the other, every time. Uh, no matter how they are, each time they go into it thinking I'm just going to, I'm going to be the, you know, I'm going to be the survive, the ultimate survivor. I don't need other human beings. I don't need warmth and food and companionship and the internet and all that kind of stuff. And then they just, it turns out they do every time they're sad alone. They just want to go home. I guarantee that is what the first Mars colonists, moon colonists are going to be like. I wanna go home. I just wish I didn't have to spend half of my day running my O2 scrubber, my CO2 scrubber, to just breathe. This is getting old. So yeah, that's how I feel. The late night gamer. Could we crash Mars into Pluto to make it habitable eventually? Um which which one are we crashing into what? So wait a second. So we're gonna crash Mars into Pluto to make Pluto habitable? No. Crash Mars into Pluto, you would end up with a world that was roughly the mass of Mars, like a little more. Uh, And Mars is like the 10th the mass of the Earth, but it would be out of the orbit of Pluto. And so it would be really cold. So briefly, it would be a mess. And then it would all freeze again, and get cold back down to the point that you've got nitrogen making glaciers. Now, if you brought Pluto into the inner solar system and crashed into Mars, you'd make a mess for like a while millions of years, while it's, you know, turn Mars molten again. And then it would cool down. And the sun would blast away all of the volatiles off of it and out into deep space. And then it would be like a little more massive than it is today. So no, neither of those is going to really do the trick. Gwim, do you think AI and advanced automation will one day make travel to the moon Mars relatively cheap? Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about, about trivialization. And, and we don't know what ways of living are going to be trivialized by our technology, but we but we know for certain that they will, that, that some that we are going to come up with new technologies, either a really powerful propulsion system, like metallic hydrogen, or antimatter engine or uh plasma thruster or something that's going to make getting out of the Earth's gravity well because right now chemical rockets are are right at the very edge of what's possible to get off of planet Earth. And so you fire a chemical rocket, full bore, you've got 99% of your fuel is just to get you into orbital velocity. And you have this teeny tiny little payload. And if Earth was any more massive, then that system wouldn't work. So it's we're right at the edge of what's possible. But uh, again, imagine if you had a car and you filled up your car with gas. And then it was, you know, just enough gas to get you to the next gas station that was like a kilometer away and then you fill it up with gas again, then just enough gas like that would be awful. Except also your car was 99% gas tank. And you destroyed it after every time you got to the next gas station. Anyway, Um, so it's about trivializing, like, like, there will be new technologies that come along AI, definitely, I mean, again, you know, and we, we develop an AI, it comes up with some really clever solutions to some really tricky problems. And suddenly, um, all of our problems have been solved. And, and we don't know what artificial intelligence will come up with. It's going to come up with some crazy stuff, for sure. Like, imagine you invent a much smarter person than you, who then goes about solving all your problems also creating new ones. (laughs) Who knows what that's all going to be about. So I think, um, yeah, I think we just we, we don't know what the future holds. We just know that it's that it will be more and new and different and not what we expect. And so if you kind of have one expectation is that the future will be weird. Ted Krause. Do you think we should spend all this time on bettering our planet than Mars? Like, are you asking the why should we bother spending anything on spaceflight? And instead, we should be spending money on Earth? No, we should be spending plenty of money on spaceflight. And, and because money spent in space, actually gets spent down here on Earth. If you buy a rocket, to go to space, what you're actually doing is you're paying engineers and scientists and an entire supply chain here on Earth to build your rocket. Now, sure, you could buy a carbon sequestration machine for the same amount of money and have a different impact. But money spent on space is money spent on Earth. And we do know that our lives have been made immeasurably better by by space technology, by satellites, by our radio telescopes by our just our understanding just of science in general. So no, I am I'm a gigantic fan of us spending way more money on space exploration and astronomy than we do today. Um, And that, and that the wonderful thing, the wonderful benefit is that also makes the earth better. I mean, We now have satellites capable of measuring methane exhaust leaked methane, which is like a third of the greenhouse gases from tiny little methane leaks all around the world, because we've got a satellite that does this. Um, So no, I think like, we make Earth better by spending money on space exploration. Professor Newman, between the Zeely sequence culture series Ringworld, three body problem, which would you recommend read first? Well, I've only read three of those I haven't read the Zeely sequence. So I would read the three body problem. No question. It's, again, it's, it's mind blowing. Like I can't, I can't get across how amazing the three body problem series is first one bit of a slog. Second one really gets going, expands your mind, you're really excited for what happens. The third one just goes places you were not prepared that your mind was just not ready to comprehend. Um, The ring world series, they're fine. I like them back in the day. I don't think they hold up that much. Um, And the culture series, I've only read the first one. uh, Consider Plebeius, I haven't read read the rest yet. They're on my list. But I liked it. It was great. Great book. So but I haven't read the Zili sequence. So if anyone has a recommendation on that one. So hey, Kazi, can the microphone on perseverance rover catch the sounds of the ingenuity helicopter? Like the sounds from his propellers? Yeah, so. So perseverance is the first spacecraft that's ever been sent to Mars first rover first mission, that's been sent to Mars, that has a proper microphone on board. And this is a thing that NASA has wanted to do. And specifically, the Planetary Society has been advocating for decades, Uh, like, like they've been trying to get and they've like done designs for them, they've, they've advocated for it. And for whatever reason, uh, the microphone was cut out of the budget for the spacecraft, the spacecraft crashed. Um, A microphone has never gotten to Mars before. We had kind of a microphone with insight it was it was able to detect sounds in the air through its seismograph and so on. But that's not the same. But perseverance will have a microphone on board. And yeah, of course, it's gonna, it's gonna be listening as it's gonna be hearing the wind blowing. It's gonna be hearing its wheels rolling around on the surface of Mars, it's gonna hear the helicopter take off and then hear it crash, which it will do because I mean, come on, all helicopters, we all, all little toy helicopters crash when you get them. So um, yeah, it should be able to hear that. I'm, I gotta say that's, that's one of the things I'm, I'm most excited about is, is that we're going to hear Mars for the first time. We've seen it, but we will hear it. We will see the, we will see pictures and hear the wind uh, blowing against the, the rover, hearing the sand shifting around it. I'm, I'm really excited about a microphone. Zachary, what are the most likely space technologies to advance quality of life on Earth in the next few years? I mean, we're already kind of experiencing it with Starlink with the ability to have telecommunications anywhere on Earth. I mean, for most people right now, their access to the internet is either non existent like half planet Earth can access the internet. And then the other half, you hate your internet service provider, come on, admit it, like who among you loves the person, the company that brings you internet today. So imagine a world of completely ubiquitous internet all the time that your that your cell phone is connected at at blazing speeds all the time, and you never even think about it. Earth observation, think about, I talked about methane, think about just our ability to track from space, every single problem that's happening on Earth, and to be able to transmit that so people can deal with it. Um, Fires, being able to detect fires as they're starting, you know, apparently now, um, earthquakes can potentially be, uh, they think they can, they can sense where earthquakes are going to happen. They essentially feed landscapes into artificial intelligence, and it seems to be able to, to Guess where earthquakes are likely to happen. Uh, so you can just imagine all of these ways, traffic patterns, just all these. The, the, again, the more satellites that we have in space observing the Earth, the more knowledge that we can have about our existence. So uh, there's, it just goes on and on and on. But I think that's the big one. Like ubiquitous access to the internet for as much of humanity as possible, at a reasonable, eventually free. Price uh, is going to be a game changer, and and that will connect all of humanity into one big brain. So yeah, that that. All right, we've reached the end of our hour. Uh, I hope you all had a wonderful family day, which is what we call it in Canada. I think it's some kind of holiday in the U.S., but anyway. Um, Thank you, everybody for joining me tonight, spending your precious time listening to me ramble about not going to Mars. Um, Thank you uh, to everyone who asked questions and watching on YouTube and on Twitch. Thanks, of course, to our moderators, and to Nancy Graziano for putting in all of the questions so that I was able to stay marginally organized. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you'll want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of articles, with pictures, brief highlights about the story, and links, so you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all of my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format, so that you can have the latest episodes, as well as special bonus material, like interviews with me show up on your audio device go to universetoday.com audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll put a link in the show notes.